Right, so Genesis chapter 10 and 11. We're going to move through Genesis really, really fast. Uh, it's a genealogy. I'm not going to take the time to go through all of the names. Um, I'm just going to try and give you a summary and an overview. Um, there in chapter 10, and, and slow our study into chapter 11, although we get genealogies there as well. Um, but we're going to be introduced to the worldwide rebellion again on planet Earth against God at the Tower of Babel. Um, there's also um, in these genealogies references to uh, a guy by the name of Nimrod. I'm not really going to spend much time on him today, uh, just going in some different directions. But we will spend some time with a man by the name of Abram, who we better know as who? Abraham. So the name change will come later in the book of Genesis. But this is where we are in chapter 10 as we look at the descendants of Noah. In chapter 9, the Lord said to them, Okay, be fruitful, multiply, and then this line was found in Genesis 10 and 9, and fill the earth. Um, that is what chapter 10 is going to describe for us, as how the earth was filled. But here's what you got to know. Chapter 10 chronologically comes after chapter 11. So, um, you know, Westerners, this drives us nuts. Why would they do this? But, you know, in these cultures, they were not so worried about that chronological order. And, and I guess the logic behind it is the, the command is to fill the earth. And look, the earth was filled. Oh, let's go back. But it took a little persuading to get that done. And that's kind of how the chapters um, go together. In this, we have the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the three sons of Noah. And verses 2 through 5, Japheth um, it makes up a lot of the uh, Indo-European nations. This is kind of according to Henry Morris. Um, uh, Asia Minor, Europe, like thinking of Germany, Russia, Persia, Greece, Italy, Armenia, Spain, Cyprus. That's the geographical locations and the people groups. Verses 6 through 20, we have the descendants of Ham. Probably most familiar this far in our study with Ham because... Uh, he's the one that sinned when he saw his father, Noah, naked and disrespected him. By the way, if you don't like my title from last week, here's one that will help you remember. And if you weren't here, you're going to be like, what in the world is that guy saying? But you, listen, just read the previous chapter. Um, it, the title from last week could have been Naked Noah and Nasty Ham. <laughs> it could have been that. It would have been a really good description of that chapter. And, and Ham, he did this and Somehow his son Canaan, and you can see this, um, only one of his sons, Canaan, um, was involved. And there was a, uh, a, a judgment that was put upon that descendant. So for Ham, you have uh, those that come from Ethiopia, Egypt, Africa, uh, the Canaanites, uh, Babylon, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Phoenicians, the Hittites, the Philistines, or the Jebusites. Who are the Jebusites? The Jebusites are the ones that are holding Jerusalem when David decides to take that. And so they are the ones that are in control of that city. Of course, David comes and fulfilling the word of the Lord to drive out the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, because of their sinful rebellion against God. So that's Ham. Then you come to Shem in verses 21 to 32. And the notable uh, descendants there is Abraham. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the nation of Israel. Um, through Abraham, you also have Ishmael and Esau, 
the Middle East Arab countries. And so we have just this breakdown. Now, there's nothing um, in ancient history that is like this table of nations. This table of nations comes up again. I think it's in Jeremiah. So a second time that we'll find it in Scripture. So it just helps to explain the nations of the world, the different ethnic uh, ethnicities of, of this earth, to see their geographical locations. Why does the Lord spend so much time on genealogies? I know I'm repeating this, but I just want to say it again. They're helpful for a few ways. One of the most significant ways is that the genealogy helps us follow the promise that was given to Eve that she would have a son that would crush the head of, the, of Satan, the serpent, who deceived them and brought the, the curse upon the world. And so this is a vibrant hope that they have looking for the one that would come and liberate them and set them free. So when she had Cain and Abel, she thought, well, I've got two, maybe one of these. Well, Cain ends up becoming a wicked guy, doesn't worship the Lord as he knows to worship the Lord. But Abel does, so the hope is kind of on Abel, but Cain kills Abel. What are we going to do? Well, she has another son by the name of Seth. And so the, the godly line of Seth becomes the one through whom that promise comes to. And you go through Seth, you come to Noah. The whole rule gets wiped out except for Noah, a descendant of Seth. And the Lord says, I'm going to preserve. And that's why specifically that line was preserved, because of the promise that was given. They come off the ship, they come off the boat, and he has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Then we read their descendants, and we come to Shem, and we come to Abraham, and then we come to um, Isaac and Jacob and David, right? Judah and then David. And we follow the genealogies all the way until we come to Jesus. Why is that important? Because not just anybody can stand up and say, oh, I believe I'm the Messiah. I mean, David Koresh in Waco, Texas, thought he was, but he did not fit the genealogies, and there's a few other problems too. Just because you, you, know, you came from the line of David doesn't mean that you're the Messiah, but you can't be the Messiah if you don't come. And so Scripture is charting this and helping us follow through to make certain that we got the right identity. Who wants to follow the wrong Messiah? No one. And so this is the purpose of the genealogies. Not the only purpose, but that certainly is the most significant of the reasons. I just want you to note as well, and I'm just going to read to you from Arnold Fruchtenbaum. It's a fun name to say. Um, he says, God showed the unity of humanity here in this table of nations. The unity of humanity. I mean, it's all family, right? It's it's Noah and his kids and their kids and their kids and so on. It's just, it's a family. That there's no such thing as racial or ethnic superiority. You don't find that in the scriptures. That is inserted by people that want to try and justify that um, racism or that ethnic superiority. And they'll inject that into the text. But it's not found in the text. It's just a family and their children, and their children's children. So where does this idea come from? It comes from the wicked hearts of men and women. It is now through Shem that the, that the attention is going to spend, you know, Old Testament will spend most time on, is through his descendants. Of course, we're going to talk a lot about Ishmael. We're going to talk a lot about the Jebusites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and all of these other individuals, the Babylonians and the Assyrians. But we have this as a guide for us.
chapter 11. In verses 1 through 9, we're introduced to a rebellion. And again, we're kind of going back in time, right? So chapter 10 is just showing us how the nations spread out and where they landed. But in chapter 11, that hasn't happened yet. It becomes the way in which it happens. Again, chapter 9, you should fill the earth. That's the commandment. But in chapter 11, beginning at verse 1, we read, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and dwelt there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. That's really the line that you got to look at. That's the, that's the significant point of them saying, we know what you want, but we're going to do everything we can to make certain that we don't fill the earth. We're going to build a tower. We're going to reach to the heavens. We're going to be strong together, and we are going to defy what you have called us to do. Let's keep on reading in verse 5. It says, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they, shall, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down. Notice the plural of God speaking, the Trinity. Let us Go down there and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from over the face of the, all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel. Why? Because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So what God told them to do, he persuaded them to do. What's going on here at the Tower of Babel? I mean, again, another account that we really desire to have more information for. The important details are given to us. How did the earth get filled? Where did the language come from? Where did the people groups come from? And this chapter really explains that for us. But what's going on at the Tower? Uh, it seems most likely the best explanation is that they're worshiping false gods. They're, they're using this... Uh, place as an astrological center where they begin to worship the different gods, the moon god and so forth. The moon god was a, a god that was um, uh, the preeminent false god deity that was worshipped in this region. So it seems like the, this is going on. Are they literally wanting to build up to the throne room of God and to the heavens? I, I don't think we should read it that way. If that was the point, they should have gone up to Mount Ararat. I hear it's pretty high where the ark was, and they could have saved a lot, of, you know, at least 13,000 know, feet, you know, right, of, of building time. And they could have built from there. So th that's not what's going on. There's something else. There's a, there's a connection that's happening. Um, it has been suggested that, again, if we think about some of the other uh, places around the world, like the pyramids of Egypt or Central America, uh, those... Uh, ziggurats that are made there or Stonehenge that there's places around the world ancient places where it was connected with the worship of the the stars and the moon and the sun 
And it seems like that, that might have been what was going on. Here's an interesting thing. Babel, now again, you get two different definitions, and it comes from how people look at this event. Those that worshipped um, false deities said that Babel means uh, Ba, the, um, the gateway, and El of God, the gateway of God. That sounds nice and inviting, doesn't it? Who doesn't want to go there? But here, what does it, the text say this means? It means confusion. We even, that's even made it down into our own language today. We all say things like, what are you babbling on about? Come on, make sense. I can't understand what you're trying to say. And that's what happened. It turned to Babel. They're in Babylon, right? At this location where they were um, working and laboring and, and doing life. So at some point, God came and he confused the language. One moment they're talking, the next moment somebody says something like, what in the world did you just say? And that person's saying, what in the world did you just say? I can't understand you. I can't understand. And nobody understands anybody except small pockets. So we don't know what the size of them were. I'm sure we could, you know, somebody's taking the time to probably do some research on this. But, you know, it became pockets of people that understood each other. And those people became the ones that would go to a different part of the earth. They, would, they scattered about. That was the net result. This place of um, idolatrous worship was stopped, and they began to move out into other places. And um, it, it's through this process that um, becomes a, a real plausible explanation for uh, the diversity of the way humanity looks. So as, as they went away, um, distinctive cultures were developed, distinctive physical and biological characteristics were established as they had a smaller group of people in which they were marrying with. Um, they ended up, uh, certain dominant genes of those people began to uh, take on because they weren't, you know, wasn't a wider population for them where they went. So you allowed the different features that, um, that uh, were already in uh, the genetic, in the genes of some people became light-skinned, some people became dark, some people became medium, tall, short, brown hair, black hair, red hair, you know, all blonde hair, all these different things. And you had different places that became dominant like that. And so this is how we can have a, a biblical explanation for the diversity that um, exists upon the earth. But I mean, really, I mean, the diversity among humanity is really, it's pretty minimal when you think about it. And it's tragic that we've taken some of these very minimal things of, you know, um, your ethnic background, your skin color, or whatever it might be, you know, the way your nose or your ear looks. I mean, there's been all kinds of crazy reasons for genocide down through human history. And, um, but, but what we see is just a, a family, um, that family groups that are going out based upon that new language that they are speaking but you know, the, the rebellion is so clear. It's so in the face of God. It's like, they, it's like we know that you want us to go and fill the earth, but we are not going to do what you want. We're going to stay here, and we're going to build this tower. And, um, and, and let me just say this. You know, some people say, well, this tower was actually them trying to get in contact with aliens. Okay, there's no evidence for that whatsoever. Um, so, well, I, I think it's a possibility. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, in, in silence, you can make anything a possibility, can't you? 
But it seems most likely that this was just the worship of false gods, and the Lord came, and he, he confused it all. And you know what takes place when we rebel against God? Do you, do you know what takes place even down to this very day when a, a, a man or a woman or a family says, we know what God wants, we know what the Word of God says, but we're not going to do that. We know that you know, Jesus claimed the way, the way, the truth, and life, that he came from heaven, died upon the cross for our sins, and rose three days from the, later, from the grave, and that we should follow him. But you know, we're not going to do that. We're going to do this. That rebellion still exists today. But you know, just as that rebellion in the first you know, world led to confusion, it's no different today. When people rebel against God, it's like Babel. Confusion begins to set in. A darkness begins to set in. And they, they miss out on the light of the Lord. All of us I can understand this and relate to this because all of us once were in that place who were not a people of God, but now we are the people of God. We are a people of faith. But if you're outside of the Lord today, you're like, yeah, I know this is what people say, but I'm just... I just don't want to do it. Listen, don't be surprised when there's a confusion that settles over your life. You don't understand the meaning and the purpose that God has for you on this earth. And it just begins to feel like a monotony of life that doesn't have any real meaning or significance or purpose. There's a whole book in the Bible that's written about that. It's called Ecclesiastes. And Solomon had this conclusion that everything was, was empty and vain because he was living life outside of a obedience to the Lord until the end of his life. And then at the end, it made sense. So, confusion, darkness. You know, what does darkness do? Darkness, I mean, you stumble in the dark, right? It's in darkness that people often get fear, get fearful. It's in darkness that evil often is going to take place. But light brings comfort. Light exposes things for the way they really are. Light brings beauty. And, and, and Jesus said, I am what? The light of the world. And when we come to Jesus, he casts light upon the confusion of what my life is all about. When we come to Jesus and we walk in, in his light, then, then we see the beauty of the world. and We see the beauty of salvation. We can really enjoy the life that he has called us to have. It doesn't mean that everything becomes perfect. One day it will. One day it will. But not now. There's trials and there's tribulations and there's difficulty. But when you, when you come to the Lord and you follow him and you obey him and you walk in the light, you're going to experience a joy of your life, a peace of your life. And, and we talk about joy. There's a difference between joy and happiness, isn't there? There's nothing wrong with happiness, okay? It's not bad. Happiness is a good thing. But happiness, as my youth pastor used to say, happiness is based on happenings. When the happenings ain't happening, you ain't happy, right? I mean, this is the, that's what, it's dependent upon something coming together. And you can be happy right now, and then you can go outside and see that somebody hit your car and didn't leave a note, and you are no longer happy. You can be happy with this phone call, and the next phone call will make you unhappy. That's life. But there's this joy is different. 
Joy is not based upon the last thing that took place in my life. Joy is based upon a relationship with Jesus Christ and me being in a right standing with him. And there's that joy. If you want to think about it like this, you can. Joy is like the, uh, not the thermometer, but joy is like the thermostat of a room. A thermometer measures the environment. The thermostat sets the environment. And when you come to the Lord, he will give you joy. doesn't mean all the happenings are going to be great, but he'll give you joy. And when the happenings go up and down, it's all right. Because it's been set to the right temperature. And so if you have confusion in your life and you're not following the Lord, that's why. And he is calling you to come and to submit yourself to him. In verses 10 through 26 in Genesis chapter 11, we again come to another genealogy. And we see in the first line of verse 10, this is the genealogy of Shem. So this becomes the the messianic line. But I want to just pick up at verse 25 and 26. It says, After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And so all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, got some names there that I finally recognize. And this becomes the focal point of the next chapters. It's through Abraham that the Messiah is going to come. And so now, having mentioned Terah, in verses 27 to the end of the chapter, we now zero in on his descendants, and not many of them. Just a few here to begin with. And so verse 27, this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot, probably another name, the nephew of Abraham, right? And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, who we know as Sarah. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran or Haran. So as we look at this, we're introduced to to the family. So a little bit about the family. Joshua Chapter 24, verse 2, tells us about the family and what they were into before God got hold of Abram's life. Joshua 24, 2 said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river, or of the Chaldeans, in old times, and they served other gods. Abram's family was an idolatrous worshiping family. They were worshiping false gods. Which one? Well, we can't say with biblical certainty, but we do know and have some really good clues. Number one, we know in Ur of the Chaldeans at this particular time, the predominant worship was of the moon god 
who had the name Sin. Not making that up. That's real. That was his name, Sin. And that was a, pre- that was a preeminent god of the Ur of the Chaldeans. That that's, doesn't make it conclusive that Abram's uh, Father Terah worshipped that. However, when you begin to work through the names of the family, and I'm not going to take the time to do that, but um, you know, when you begin to work through the names of the family, you see that all of their names are related to this God's sin and the worship of this moon god. So God calls Abram. Now, again, we're going to see that chapter 12 is going to take us back in time and is going to give us a little more detail than we get here at the end of chapter 11. So just if you pick up and read chapter 12, just know that you're going back in time from the way uh, chapter 11 ends. But what's significant is the specific call and instructions that God gives to Abraham while he is in the land of the Chaldeans and Ur of the Chaldeans among the idolaters. And I just want to read one of those verses, chapter 12, verse 1 of Genesis. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. That's not hard to follow, is it? Those are very simple words. Those are very simple commandments. And yet, Abram didn't do it. Because what we read in chapter 11 is that Terah came out and Lot came out. And they were, we know that Abraham was go, called to go to a promised land, the land where the Canaanites dwelt. It's the land where uh, modern Israel is. It's the land where David was in his kingdom and Solomon and so forth. The land that Jesus came to. That's that same geographical location of Canaan as we're reading it here in chapter 11. And God said, get out of this, leave your family behind and go to the land. Now chapter 11 tells us that they were going to Canaan, but they didn't get to Canaan. They stopped in Haran. Why did they stop in Haran? Scripture is silent, but here's an interesting point. Just as Ur of the Chaldeans was a preeminent place for the worship of the moon god, guess what was going on in Haran as well? It was also the place where they worshipped the moon god. And you can imagine as they traveled and making this arduous journey, they got their father, Terry. He's like, this is enough. Enough with the camels. Enough with the tents. Enough with this pack up and travel and look for water. This place feels like home to me. This is similar to where I came from. And so the family stopped and didn't go. And now we know why the Lord said, get out of your father's house and leave that place. Because in taking the family, it ended up creating a... Um, Well, they bogged down in fulfilling the word of the Lord. And even with Lot, that ends up becoming an issue later on, doesn't it? And so the word of the Lord was simple. Now, listen, Abraham makes a radical move. He starts off so well, leaves, but he makes a compromise and he brings family with him. Say, well, I mean, but that's family. I mean, if it's family, it's family and you can't, you got it, you can't, you know, ignore them. Well, you can if the Lord tells you to. Jesus put it like this. Jesus said, if you're not willing to forsake mother and father and brother and sister, you're not worthy to follow me. I'm the preeminent one. I'm the one that's first. If you following me 
is going to be hindered by your family ties and your family relation or the pull they have upon you, then I better win. And if I'm not going to win and your mom and dad's going to win or your brother and sister is going to win or your son or daughter is going to have a greater voice in your life than I am going to have in your life, then Jesus said, you are not worthy to follow me. It's King Jesus. We're not just talking about somebody else. We're not talking about just another person. We're talking about the one who holds our very existence together, who hung and died on the cross for us. At the Tower of Babel, outright rebellion. You want us to fill the land? We're not going to do it. We're going to build a tower, and somehow this is going to help us to never be scattered. And they're like, no, I think you're going to be scattered. And they were scattered. But it was full-on rebellion. With Abram, it's not full-on rebellion, and it's not full-on obedience. It's compromise. And this is a point that I think we probably all can relate to a little bit. Spurgeon put it this way, halfway obedience increases our responsibility because it is a plain confession that we know the Lord's will, though we do it not. Abram had received the call and knew that he had done so, else why had he come to Haran? He admitted by going as far as Haran that he ought to go to the whole way, go the whole way to Canaan, and so By his own action, he left himself without excuse. We have left a life apart from Christ to follow the Lord. But what is it that he has? Now, all of us in common, we have the revealed word of God that tells us how to live our lives today. It tells us that the kingdom of God should be a priority. It tells us that we should love one another. It tells us that we ought to live for his purposes. This is what we we all have this in common. But there are also those specific words that the Lord gives to our lives about what we are to do. And it's there we must be certain that we are obedient and we follow the Lord. Have you gone halfway? I mean, it's great that you left Ur of the Chaldeans. It's a bad place. It's great that you come out of the darkness. It's great that that has happened in your life. But are you hung up in some place you shouldn't be? Have you you only gone part of the way? And yet every time you have a a genuine encounter with the Lord, it's like there it is again right before you. You know what the Lord is calling you to do. You know what he wants from your life. And yet there's this tension that exists that you're supposed to be in Canaan, but you're in Haran. You know you should be full on for the Lord, but yet you've only gone part way. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought at a price, Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. What's God's? You are God's. Your body and your spirit are not your own if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then we must follow what he has to say. If he says to go to Canaan, We don't stop in Haran. If he says to get out of your father's house, you don't bring father's house with you. What is it that God has said to Troy Warner or to you, to your family, to us as a body of believers? This is where I want you to go. And maybe it's family ties. Maybe this is not just like a metaphor for you. Maybe this is like, it's really the issue, is family ties and relationships are keeping you from following the Lord and doing what he wants you to do. Let the words of the Lord resonate in your heart 
of his command and his demand that you would follow him. Because you're bought at a price. You're not a free agent anymore. You're owned by someone. And it's by Master Jesus. And he's not going to abuse you. And he's not going to misuse you. But we follow him. And he didn't say that it would be easy, did he? He says, you know what? They don't like me. I don't think they're going to like you either. You're not better than me. So don't be surprised when they hate you and speak evil of you. This should not be a surprise to you. Oh, narrow is a path. And few that find it that lead to life. It's a hard path. The, the broad path, I mean, it's an easy road to walk. Everybody else is doing it. Just go with the course of the world. But if you want to write, follow the narrow path and follow me, it's going to be really, really hard. The Lord has been honest with us. Following Jesus means we've got to make radical decisions. It was a radical decision to leave Ur of the Chaldeans. But the fully radical call was to leave that geographical location, to leave the worship of that moon god, but also to leave family behind. Because the Lord knew. The Lord knew what was best. I wonder if this ties in at all. We'll get to this later when he, the Lord calls him to offer up his son Isaac. What's family mean to you now, Abraham? He passes that test. And we'll give, that's another story. But we've been bought at a price and we should glorify God in our body and in our spirit. You know, it's like, well, I don't want to be so fanatical that you know, I can't relate to people. What, what does that even mean? I want to be so fanatical. I mean, okay, so you don't want to be rude? Okay, don't be rude. Is that, if that's what you think fanatical means. But if being full on for Jesus and obeying his commandments and living a holy life to you seems too radical and too fanatical that it's going to offend the world, you don't understand the world, nor do you understand the call of Christianity. Because here's the, here's the real deal. The world can't stand hypocrites. Have you noticed that? They might not believe in Jesus, and they not, might not believe in holiness, but they can't stand it when we tell them how to live and we don't do it. They repudiate that at every opportunity. The world is radical. Have you noticed that the world is radical? Do we really think that half-hearted Christians are going to win a radical world? That's not, that's not going to happen. It's going to take a radical life that's fully following the Lord to reach people that are fully following another cause and purpose. And that's our mission. That's our job. Listen, who, whatever happens in this election and the way it turns out, it may be, I know there's people feeling sad and we're feeling depressed and we're worried and some people are jubilant and they're excited. People have different reactions. But I can tell you what is true. Nothing has changed for the mission of Jesus Christ. It is as clear and sharp and as focused today as it was four years ago or 14 years ago or 400 years ago. Our mission is clear. This is not the kingdom that is first for us. We are firefighters, and our first mission is to pull people out of the fire, not save the building. Get the people out, then we can save the building. And here's what history has shown. When people are pulled out of the building, when people get saved, that community, that country, it becomes a place where it is preserved and can prosper. So listen. We need to be full on for the Lord. We need to make sure we're not hanging out 
well, you know, I knew the call of God in my life, and I began to walk out that call, and I still feel like it's there, but I was so hurt by people, and I was so disappointed in the way the church responded or the way this happened, and so now I'm just not doing it. Well, you, you answer to the Lord for that. So the church should be a place of comfort and support. It should be a place that encourages. And I believe that, for the most part, that is exactly what happens. But sometimes you can be hurt at church. And so you were going to be in ministry. You were going to answer that call, but you had something happen, and now you're not going to do it. That is not an excuse to hang out in Haran. The promise of what God land that he's called you to specifically, you got to go there. You've got to walk it out. Well, I've got these disappointments, and I've had this. All I can say is, yeah, join the club of humanity. We all have disappointments. We all have hurts and pains. But that does not thwart God's call upon our life. We must obey the Lord. So we have this little you know, vignette of Abraham's life and where he is not fully obedient and where he should have been. You're not your own. I am not my own. It's simply follow Jesus. And we go where he goes. When Jesus was on this earth, people came to see the miracles, see him cast out demons, raise the dead. I mean, who wouldn't, right? I mean, if you, if G, if you knew Jesus was for real deal on planet earth doing all of these things and you knew where he was going to be next week, are you going? I'm going. I'm going to find a way to get there. And that's how they felt. But you know, a lot of the people felt that way when he was performing the miracles. But as soon as the miracles stopped and began to say, now if you want to follow me, you got to deny yourself and take up your cross. They're like, oh, I'm out. Not interested. Not interested. And at one of these moments, Jesus said to his disciples, uh, what about you guys? Are you going to leave me also? And Peter's response was a beautiful one. He says, Lord... You alone have the words of life. Where else are we going to go? We don't have anywhere else we can go where we're going to find life like we have it with you. No, we're, you're stuck with this, Jesus. And I hope that's what you're saying this morning. Lord, you're stuck with me. I'm following you to the very end. And just hear the kindness and the grace and yet the rebuke of the Lord that if you're hanging out in a place you shouldn't be, that it's time to pack your bags and finish the journey Walk it up. Finish well is the commandment that we have. Finish well your walk in your race. Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you that you even call us into the race to go on the road. And Lord, if we suffer any hardship or any difficulty or disappointments for your namesake, Lord, who are we that we could be anything like you even in suffering? It is more than we, would, we deserve. And may we have a proper understanding, a proper focus, Lord.